0: Begin. begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the fellowship of the saints. Thank you that when you save us out of this wicked, lost world, you save us out of the world and into the body of Christ. And here we find joy and fellowship and opportunity to discuss our mutual salvation, opportunity to encourage one another and pray for one another And Lord, to open the Scriptures together and learn and help help each other as we try to understand what You've said in Your Word. Thank You for that opportunity. Lord, we thank You for the saints that are scattered around the world that listen on the Internet. We thank You for them. We thank You for their faith and their hope. And Lord, we pray that You would encourage them and protect them and help them find fellowship. And we commit this... Morning to you in Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, we have, we were two weeks ago. Eric taught last week, and I heard a lot of good things about it. And but before that, we were talking about Paul's thorn in the flesh, and I, I we mainly got through that. I had a couple of um, citations from scholars that I hadn't got to. But let me read the verse. 2 Corinthians 12.7 Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Now, as we said two weeks ago, no one's been able to identify exactly what this is. We know it's either something physical or something personal. And I gave some evidence for the possibility that it actually is something personal. It may have been uh, somebody tormenting him or what have you, but we don't know for sure. The thorn is a scallops in the Greek. And even that, we can't be sure whether it means a thorn or a stake. Elsewhere in Greek, the Greek language, it typically means a stake but in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was done a couple hundred years before the time of Christ by Jewish scholars in Alexandria, they actually translated the term thorn to be scallops. So if Paul is influenced by the Septuagint, then he's talking about a thorn in the flesh. If other, it's a stake, but whatever the case, we don't know exactly what it is. So I think we discussed that fairly fairly well, I mean, last time. I had a couple of citations from scholars that I thought were interesting. This is from uh, Dr. Garland. He says this about the thorn. This surprising twist reflects the paradoxical way God defeats Satan. God permits Satan to strike the apostle, but God turns the stricken Paul into an even greater instrument of his power. Is that something to think about? I mean, that's comforting. It really is comforting. That uh, we know that our greatest adversary is Satan. But we also know that if God allows him to do anything to us, he only does so so to make for our benefit. And and in Paul's case, all he did was preach the gospel and and did so with a better attitude than he would have had. I talked about this a little bit last or two weeks ago, and I've had some experiences like that myself. I know for a fact that had I not gone through some very difficult hardships uh 15 years ago I would not be anywhere near as usable by the Lord and I don't know how much I am now but it's better than it would have been I'll say that okay I'm not making any grand claims but I do preach the gospel and that I can always rejoice in that whatever else happens the gospel's preached and one of the times when I was going through my biggest battles that's that's what I Decided, well, if Satan's going to attack me like this, then the only way I can think of to get back at him is preach the gospel and plunder his kingdom. So, if he wants to attack, then he's just going to make me preach the gospel more. Okay, so um, God permitted Satan to strike the apostle, but God turns the stricken Paul into a greater instrument of his power. A proud, arrogant Paul would have only hindered the gospel's advance. A humiliated... Frail Paul, led as a captive in God's triumph, has accelerated the gospel's progress so that the fragrance of knowing God spreads everywhere. He's thinking of 2 Corinthians 2.14 that we studied. Well, we were in this building, I remember, when we studied that, so a couple years ago. Remember, I played that excerpt from um, John MacArthur talking about restoring a disheartened pastor's joy that was based on Second Corinthians 2.14, the triumphal pro, uh, procession that brings the fragrance of Christ to a lost and dying world. And this is from Barnett, who says, Thus having given them a revelation... Yeah, this, I thought this was ironic. Remember he told a story about, about going into heaven, but was not permitted to talk about it? So here's what I thought an interesting turn of, of a phrase here. Barnett says, thus having given them a revelatory story without a revelation, he now gives them a healing story without a healing. <laughs> okay, so, so he's still got the thorn in the flesh. There's no healing there. And the revelation he couldn't talk about anyhow, so they, they didn't find out about either in any detail. But Barnett has some very good things to say. He wants, he's talking about this word overlifted. Um. Because of the surpass, uh, um, surpassing greatness of the revelation, for this reason, to keep me from exalting, there's a strange word used there. Um, it's uh, "huper Who pairs where we get "hyper"? Means over, or above, and then "eirasthai" would be uplifted. So, by putting "hyper" in front of a word that already means uplifted, it says over uplifted. So he's really saying, to keep me from being just taken all away from this earth, he was given a thorn in the flesh. The rarely used verb, hyper, irosthai, like hyperleon, very much more superlative, used with the false apostles, they were superlative apostles, is compounded with the preposition hyper over, above, which is critical within his sustained and ironic polemic against the intruders. Paul takes their word, hyper, who in the Greek, and turns it against them to expose both the falsity of their claims and a superinflated view of themselves. But unlike them, he has not remained over uplifted. God brought him down to earth by his scallops, stake and kept him there, buffeting him. Meekness, gentleness, humility, patience, endurance, The Christ-like marks of an apostle, of which he has much to say in this letter, are connected with God's gift to him of the scallops. (laughs) So God allows Satan to beat up Paul and us, and the result of Satan beating on us is humility, patience, and various Christian virtues that God works into our lives. If we are under the means of grace, yes, uh, Robert, over here uh, for Glenn. If we're under the means of grace, then whatever happens in life,
1: God uses it for our benefit. Yes, Glenn. Well, I've been in Bible studies where, you know, a lot of young men can relate to this, where they're married now, they have two children, their careers are stable and going very well. I've seen guys in Bible studies say, well, what's with all these trials? My life's been going perfect my whole life. They can't even relate to it. I used to say that too. Yeah, and it's like, just wait. Just wait. Yeah. Now, <laughs> just um, wait. <laughs> the kids are young. They can't, you know. Anyway, but um, Paul's Paul is being forced into a situation where he's got that childlike dependence in his relationship to Christ because he had just been succeeding. He was, you know, if anybody was greater with backgrounds and stuff like that, it was Paul. And he gave a, you know, demonstration on why he was greater than all. But Jesus also said, unless one has childlike, you know, childlike faith, he will in no way see the kingdom of heaven. So the word dependence, I think, is the key thing to this. Yeah. I mean, I'm constantly, and I'm sure anybody else that's been through trials is doing the same thing. You're constantly dependent upon him, just right. like a father to a child.
0: Right. And Actually, that's a good segue father. into the next passage here, the next verse. Okay? The next two verses, let me read those, verses 8 and 9. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave, and he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. So that's that same point. Uh, The weaknesses and difficulties that we have that we're not able to overcome. Uh, in our own power, we're, we're in Second Corinthians 12:8. I just read are things that God uses to make us dependent on Him, to learn virtues, to learn things like patience, to learn, I believe, to be more sympathetic with people that are in their trials. Uh, and I, you know, Glenn, I, rem- I remember too. I remember being in my mid-thirties, and I, I just couldn't understand why people had problems. <laughs> Yeah, I hardly ever been sick. Anything I put my mind to, I could do, at least so I thought. And the Lord had a different plan. (laughs) I got into all kinds of things that I couldn't solve and couldn't fix and that were just beyond, just absolutely beyond anything. I, I don't know if you've had this experience, but when you get into a situation where you have several problems in your life and not one of them is going to change by you making a decision. Okay, that's what happened to me. There's no decision I can possibly make that will change anything. Then what do you do? Well, that's when you have to depend on the sufficiency of Christ. Because only God can come through and the only God can uh, do something for us. And we have to depend on Him. Not on our youthful uh, powers and abilities and uh, decisions that we can make. It's good to make right decisions, but I'll tell you, the human decision-making ability is very, very limited because we have limited power. Yes, Rich?
1: Could you tie that into when a person gives their testimony, their personal testimony, and they say, well, 20 years ago I made a decision for Christ. Could you relate that in some way? (laughs) 20
0: years ago, Christ had mercy on a rebellious sinner that didn't deserve anything. That's a better way to say it because otherwise you're giving yourself the credit. Right. When we give our testimony, we should give all the glory to God, and uh, and He had mercy. I know that's the case for me. I did not deserve one tiny bit of God's mercy. Does anybody? But He's He's so kind. He's so good. Yes, did.
1: We're putting a lot of weight on youth and error. I don't think it's restricted to youth. <laughs>
0: oh, oh. Uh, yeah, good one. Touché. Unfortunately, the sin nature doesn't go away with age. <laughs> the tendency to trust self rather than God doesn't go away just with years. But I'll tell you what, though. We can maximize, by God's grace, the value of the years by spending those years under the means of Grace. All right, if we put ourselves under the teachings of the Word in Christian fellowship with other people who love and trust God, and we have our, the, Lord, the Lord's Supper reminding us what God did for us, if we sit under the Gospel as we hear it preached, sitting under the truth of the Word and studying it together and bringing out the implications and applications together, if you do that for a lifetime, That is how God sanctifies. And it's a real shame to get older and older and older and not learn anything. Okay? You're going to get old anyhow, unless you go to be with the Lord. And if you're sitting under the means of grace, you will progress in sanctification. Because God is doing it. Assuming you have faith, if you have valid faith. My next CAC article will be on that topic. I am critiquing a book that teaches spiritual disciplines, and unfortunately the book is written by a guy who's bringing his stuff into a Reformed seminary that ought to know better, and so I'm being pretty hard on this because it's, it's really bad. We don't grow by some means that we discover by being a spiritual innovator. We don't grow because we join a monastery. We don't grow because we sit out in the woods and stare at the ground. And we don't grow because of, of all these different things people say will help. We grow because of God's grace working through His ordained means. So that, I'll, I'll contend for that position in, in the next CIC article. Now, Paul had the thorn here, but he wasn't a masochist. Okay, let's look at it this way. This is a very important distinction. Um, It doesn't follow from the fact that God uses adversity to sanctify us, that God allows Satan to give Paul a thorn in the flesh, or that God can use all kinds of things providentially for us to grow. It doesn't follow that thereby we should want such things or volunteer for them. Now, you might think, well, okay, I guess that, that makes sense. Well, it doesn't make sense to a lot of people in church history. Because in Roman Catholicism, way back, way early, way early in church history, already you have people voluntarily putting themselves under harsh, severe treatment, thinking that, well, if God can use it, then I better go get some. I better volunteer for some. So you you, join a, you take turns. They used to whip each other. Flagellation. They used to deprive themselves of any kind of comfort like sleeping on granite so that the cold stone would suck the heat out of your body and it was very unpleasant or even being chained to a wall or deprived of even communicating with other people or you know, these, take an oath of silence. So, so people would volunteer for severe treatment of the body thinking they'd help God along. And it specifically tells us in the book of Colossians, in chapter 2, that, that such things have no value against fleshly indulgence. Taste not, touch not. Colossians 2, if you want to look that up. I, I cited it in my article. So, why am I, what does that have to do with this passage? Well, Paul did not volunteer for the thorn in the flesh, and he's a normal human. He doesn't want to suffer. Okay, unless God has some reason for it, so he asked God to take it away. And that, we should not uh, long for. Misery, thinking thereby well, we're going to be better Christians. Okay, we don't desire to be sick. We don't desire to be homeless. We don't desire to lose our job. And we don't desire to have all kinds of bad things happen. And we shouldn't. But, if God, but in this case, God was behind it by allowing Satan to do this. But Paul asked for it to be taken away. He implored. I called upon God. This, by the way, is a, I don't know if this helps us identify the thorn, but concerning this in the New American Standard, it's a pronoun, and it's a genitive pronoun, and it's in the singular, and it's masculine. So you could really translate it concerning him. It could show us that the thorn was something personal, but it, from what I've read by the Greek scholars, it's not necessarily clear that that is the way it should be. Oh, I'll repeat what she said. She asked me to define means of grace again. There's an article. If you go to cicministry.org, under Articles, and the fastest way to find something is use that little search box. Type in the search box, Means of Grace, search. And you'll come up with an article on it that I wrote some years ago. Means of grace are simply what God has ordained for us by which He's going to work in our life. How has God said... Come to me in this way, and I will meet you. That's what we want to know. Now, in this article that will be coming out here later in April, I have a section in there, and Patrick, you're uh, naysaying, help me. (laughs) Patrick and I had a really long back-and-forth email exchange where he wasn't convinced. Oh, you're still not convinced, huh? Oh, my, he's a tough one. But anyhow, it did help. It helped me define my ideas because he'd challenge them and say, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second, and then I'd come back. One of the things that, I did, that we had at that email exchange that I put in my article is this point. Faith needs an object. Okay? Faith needs an object. Faith is not a metaphysical entity floating around in the universe. Faith is a person believing something or someone. Now, for the Christian, faith is faith in God as He revealed Himself to us in the Bible. Okay? So, now, what does that have to do with means of grace? It has this to do with it. If God says, if you come to Me in this manner, then I will meet you, then you can do that in faith. Does that make sense? Faith is in God and in His promises. God's person And God's promises, you can find this in the book of Hebrews. Dick and I are teaching through Hebrews, and it's sure wearing us out, isn't it? (laughs) But it's worth it. Anyhow, but that's a theme in Hebrews. The the reason the Hebrews could not go back is because these things are no longer a means of grace that God ordained in the Old Testament. God said, come to me on the day of atonement and bring the sheep and have the high priest do this, and send a, send, one, send, one, send a scapegoat out into the wilderness, when God said that to them, they could do it in faith. They could come and literally bring the sheep, come to the high priest, and have the Day of Atonement, and be forgiven, and, and, and find grace, because they're coming in faith because God said to come, and He'd meet them, and they knew that He would. But when Jesus came and inaugurated the new covenant, and as it argues in Hebrews 8, 9, and 10, all of those things are made obsolete, the very end says this is obsolete and being ready to disappear, then you could no longer come in faith because you'd be an apostate. So if you went back, and instead of coming to Jesus who shed his blood once for all and coming to the throne of grace, Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us, whoever lives to make intercession for us, who is the ascended king, and the ascended high priest who's in his high priestly session with God for us. And if we said, no, I, I like this one in Jerusalem, assuming that sacrifices were still going when Hebrews was written, which I think is correct. And I'm going to go here because this guy has garb that I can see. He's, uh, the blood is visible. And, uh, the, this is a magnific- magnificent ceremony. I think I'll come to that. And that's called apostasy. And at one time, that was actually ordained by God, but it was apostasy to do it. Because God now has given us a better high priest, Jesus, in heaven, and we come through prayer to the throne of grace and we find mercy and timely help. Grace, mercy, and timely help, it says in Hebrews 4.16. All right, we can come to Jesus in faith because God ordained that we do so. And he's got promises attached to the new covenant that we can believe. And if we believe those promises, we have better promises and a better high priest and a better sacrifice and better access. We have better access. That high priest could only go in there once a year. Anybody else went in, they'd die. And, uh, and we can go behind the veil by faith daily, anytime. Now, faith is, has an object Jesus and his promises. Now. This book that I'm critiquing has a list of spiritual disciplines that this guy promises will sanctify us. One of those is journaling. Okay, if he he claims if you keep a journal, and in your journal you write down how you feel, what you think, and, you know what sins you committed, and what God told you, and all this kind of stuff, then you will. He calls this a channel of grace. And I just take I, I tear into that thing verbally. That is a wicked doctrine. Why? Number one, God has not ordained journaling. All right? Okay, God, uh, I can just, I can say, and actually I told this to Rick Warren, I'm not going to keep a journal, because he teaches it too. Keep a journal. Why? Because you tell me to? I'm not going to keep a journal. I refuse to. What are you going to do, call me a sinner? you Are going to make me go to purgatory? What can they do? They have no power over you. And so then he says, oh, this great saint in church history kept a journal. Fine, he's exercising his Christian liberty. If you enjoy writing a journal, go ahead. But it's not a sanctifying practice. Where in the Bible did God say, if you keep a journal, then I will meet you? Nowhere. So there is no promise of God, no instruction from God, so it's impossible to do it in faith. How can I believe that God's going to sanctify me by a practice that God never ordained? I don't think this is hard to figure out. It's not, this is not rocket science. But why can't people get it? And so there's this whole list of things, silence, solitude, journaling, do this, do this, do this, do this. Well, where's the end of the list? I'd like to know where the boundary is. Yes, Patrick. Oh, Glenn and then Patrick. I just had a
1: quick question. Um, If the Jewish Messiah hasn't shown up yet, why did they quit doing blood sacrifices? Because the temple was destroyed and they had no way to do them. Yeah, what happened
0: in Judaism was once the temple was destroyed, they didn't have any way to go into the holiest place because it wasn't there. The end of it was signified when when the curtain was torn in two when Jesus died. But it didn't actually totally end until 70 A.D., And what happened to Judaism, because they lost the temple and they could not do sacrifices, Judaism turned to study. They became, uh, there's an interesting book by a guy named Johnson, last name Johnson, A History of the Jews, very well written. Uh, And they became a people of study. And everything became study. Study Torah, go to synagogue, scholars study, because that's all they had left, because there's no temple. Okay, yes
2: with regard to the means of grace
1: and how we come to God. Uh, in church history, I believe early there was a debate about whether it was uh, okay to do things that the Bible
2: didn't prescribe or whether it was we had to confine ourselves to the things that the Bible
1: prescribed. Yeah. And and the outcome of, was, of course, well, we can do things that are not found in the Bible. Um, but the difference is that when it comes to sanctifying practices yes we must come to god on his terms yes. we must come to god
0: in the way that he prescribed in no other way by giving us all these
1: ways to come to him prayer fellowship communion so forth uh god is saying no other way shall you come yes but in your daily lives i'm free to go to perkins even though god didn't prescribe it yeah when
0: in matters of sanctification it's not that way and that's a good point. I had an illustration in this article that, I, that I, I wrote it, by the way. It's amazing. I think I'm I think I'm going to bring this to the elders. It's amazing how much I can get written when I'm sitting down under a palm tree. <laughs> no. Well, I thought it was worth, it was worth a try. <laughs> nice try. No. <laughs> the palm trees are not a means of grace. <laughs> Turn with me to Colossians. I don't mind having this discussion because it helps sharpen my mind. Turn with me to Colossians, and I think I'll be able to illustrate this. In my article, I said this. If somebody can make any kind of claim they want, what if somebody says this Eat Cheerios, and you'll be more sanctified? I mean, it makes as much sense as a lot of things they say. Well, it's not a sin to eat Cheerios. But if you claim that eating Cheerios causes sanctification, you just taught a doctrine of demons. Maybe you made a food law. Let's go to Colossians 2. What Colossians is forbidding is syncretism. What's syncretism? Blending. Blending together ideas and practices from various sources. That's what they did in Colossae that Paul rebuked. Verse 16, Colossians 2. Let's just read that starting there. And I'll comment on it. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food. All right. Stop right there. So somebody says that certain diet will cause sanctification. Are they acting as your judge? Yes. Because all Christians are required to pursue sanctification and holiness. All right. And so if somebody tells me that there's something necessary for holiness, if I believe them, then I have to do that. I can't safely ignore their advice. But Paul here, just get the categories right. That's what we need is categories, all right? Um, Like uh, Eric taught in logic, okay? That's how you distinguish one thing from another. What are the categories? Okay, so no one is to act as your judge in regard to food. What does that mean? Does it mean that... You can't eat certain foods? No. What it means is you cannot prescribe foods or lack thereof as means of sanctification. You're free to eat Cheerios. But if you claim that it makes you sanctified, then you're teaching a doctrine of demons. Or drink. Or in respect of a festival. Or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Okay, so you can't prescribe certain holy days saying, well, if you keep these days or keep these festivals, then you'll be sanctified. You can't do that. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. That would even include Jewish holidays. We can't command people to keep the Jewish feasts because they're the shadow. Christ is the substance. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement. Well, there, right there goes monasticism. Oath, take an oath of poverty, take an oath of chastity, and take an oath of obedience and join the group, and thereby you're going to do what they call works of supererogation. You ever heard that term? Works of supererogation. What's that? It was a Roman Catholic doctrine that said that there are things that Christ required of all Christians, but... There are other things that are above and beyond, supererogation, above and beyond, that you can do to be even a better Christian. All right? I, I, I didn't use it in my article, but I thought about calling the article uh, Works of Supererogation for Protestants, but I, I didn't say that. <laughs> okay. Uh, no, there are no works of supererogation. There is no thing, Christ doesn't require any more than what he required. We can't make up some practice and say, there, that's, that's even better. Self-abasement. Worship of angels. There's a, whole, a book by Clinton Arnold that has a whole chapter about what that phrase means. And what and I'll give you the bottom line. It had to do with invoking the names of angels in order to protect, be protected from the stoichia or the hostile powers. They had amulets and they had syn- syncretistic lists on uh, the little, uh, medallion or something that you'd wear, and they'd have lists of angel names on them. These have been found by archaeologists. And there would be Jewish angel names and Greek ones. And they, they wanted to cover all their bases. And by invoking the names of the angels, they believed that the demons couldn't get them. So that's what that phrase uh, is about. Taking a stand on visions, he's seen. Remember Paul was talking about that? He had a vision, but he wouldn't take a stand on it. Inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by joints and ligaments grows in the growth which is from God. If you've died with Christ to the elementary principles, that's stoichia, of the world, why, do you, why as if you're living in the world you submit yourself to decree, decrees? Now look at somebody's making a decree. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. One of the decrees in this book that I'm critiquing is that you need to go into solitude and silence, remove yourself from contact with all people, and sit there in the solitude in order to be sanctified. Okay, so to say, no, that's this. Do not handle, do not touch, don't don't do this, don't do that. Where did this come from? How many people get to talk for God and tell everybody else what they have to do to be good Christians? Nobody. Only the Scriptures. Don't listen to it. It sounds religious, but it's, it's false which refer to things destined to perish for the use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. There's the problem. Where did it come from? Commandments and teachings of men. Now look at verse 23, and that will be the last one we look at. Look at very carefully. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom. How do they appear wise? Well, somebody writes a book and says, I practice this, and I become so holy, I feel so close to God. They, they they write the pious looking and pious sounding people write books telling you that if you do all these things you're going to be a better Christian. It appears pious or religious or wise. Self made religion. There's the operative word. Self made, self made, and self abasement, severe treatment of the body. But are notice this no value against fleshly indulgence. In other words, none of these practices, and this is sort of a, it's not an exhaustive list. It gives It's just an idea of the sort of things people will come up with. Somebody's always going to invent a new one. Okay? This is the sort of things people like to do. It says, they are no value. What does it say? They are not sanctifying practices. That's, that's a good word, by the way, uh, Patrick. Sanctifying practice. You can't do these things in faith knowing that God will sanctify you because God did not ordain them, therefore there's no promise attached to them, therefore there's no object for your faith. And and if you have no object for your faith, then what you're practicing is works. And Paul said earlier in Colossians, As you receive Christ Jesus, so walk ye in him. How did we receive Christ? By faith. Do you? He says to the Galatians, are you so foolish that you begin in the Spirit and think you're perfected by the flesh? No. How do we begin? By grace through faith. How do we grow? By grace through faith. How do we come to God? On His terms. How do we grow in God? On His terms. So means of grace... That's answering your question, Diane. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't know you asked such a big question. So means of grace are what God has ordained that we do by faith in order to be sanctified. Yeah, and generally we follow the outline in Acts 2.42 because everything there is reiterated three or four or five different places in the New Testament. Apostles' teaching, prayer, fellowship, Lord's Supper. Okay, Baptism is generally called a means of grace, but it's something that only one, you only do once. But Jesus did tell us to baptize disciples so that we can do that in faith. Now, one other distinction. I'll get back to Paul's thorn here. Uh, here's another distinction. In this book I critique, there's a list of things that, that we know God has told us to do, but they're not really means of grace. In other words, one of the chapter headings was serving. Okay. Well, there's another category here. Yes, we ought to serve God, but serving is the result of sanctification, not the cause of it. See the difference? Believing God's word causes sanctification. When God works graciously to change me, then the result is I serve God. But if you say serving is a means of grace, then we back to works. uh, Why pick and choose? Why choose serving and not something else? I I would say this. Why don't you just tell people, obey everything the New Testament says to do perfectly, and you'll be sanctified? Well, I would say that if you did that, you actually would be sanctified, but but you can't do it. That's your problem. That's why you need to be sanctified. So you might as well say, do everything God said, then you'll be sanctified. Well, then then you're back to works. Say, no, come to God on His terms. Put yourself under His means of grace, and God will graciously work in your life. And after He begins graciously working in your life, and as He does... You'll be you'll be serving, you'll be evangelizing, you'll be praising, you'll be worshiping, you'll be encouraging other Christians, you'll be teaching the Word of God, you'll be doing using your spiritual gifts because that's what happens when you're sanctified, but it's the result, not the cause. Now, back to Paul. He asked God to take this away. Why? Because we don't want to suffer. We don't. The, those things. The, 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 another category here. There's a difference between what God ordained that we do and what God himself does providentially. Okay? God working providentially, he causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God or are called according to his purpose. And that good is a conformance to the image of Christ. God's in charge of that. Okay? God's in charge of the thorns in the flesh. God's in charge of finding a job or losing a job or having a sickness or not having a sickness or whatever he allows to come into our life, whatever trials. God's in charge of that, not us. And so that's just part of trusting God in all things that come to us. We don't have to try to arrange it for ourselves. That That's why I consider, for example, the, the Roman Catholic uh, monastic practice of taking an oath of poverty. There are some Protestants who have a very similar version of it, including this book I'm critiquing. They call it Uh, committing yourself to simplicity. And what they mean is just have the smallest house you possibly can fit into. Uh, Don't spend any money on anything that you don't absolutely need. Maybe you should sell your house in the suburbs and move into a ghetto. Uh, Literally. I just read, remember that website that we read? they, They were talking about this family that sold their house and moved into a ghetto so they could be closer to God. You know, you're free to live in a ghetto and you're free to live wherever you decide. But you can't go move into a ghetto and then say, there, now I'm a better Christian than the ones in the suburbs. That's not a legitimate claim. Okay, so that, so we're trying to put ourselves in charge of providence and take an oath of poverty or a, an oath of simplicity. Well, you can if you want to live simply, you, you may. You're free to live and make your decisions. with well, whatever assets God has allowed you to be a steward over That's my sermon today, stewardship. Uh, The unrighteous steward, actually, in Luke 16. You are the manager of of those assets. And you're free to to practice your management in the best way you know how, by God's grace. But you can't say, I'm going to get rid of all my assets, and then I'm a better Christian than the ones that have assets. You can't do that. Because then you're being presumptuous. You're putting yourself in charge of providence, and you can't do that. You don't know enough to providentially run your own life. And in an article, I think it was a chapter of my first book, I wrote about this. I said uh, uh, people taking oaths of poverty. Okay? That's presumptuous. Because you presume to know that you'd be a better Christian poor than you would if you had money. How do you know that? Maybe the trial God wants to put you in is the trial of riches. Okay, we all sign up for that one. <laughs> <laughs> Lord, I think I need that trial. <laughs> well, the point is God decides these things, not us. Gretchen, dear sister.
2: Thank you. Um, in uh, Colossians 2:17, uh, 17, uh, in my New International Version, it says at the end of that, uh, 17b, the reality, however, is found in Christ. Amen. Okay. I, like anyone else, have an affliction and I've opted to, uh, it, it doesn't matter what it is, but just so you don't think I have cancer or something, I'm an alcoholic, but I don't drink. Now, I, um, what you're saying about providence just now was providential for me because that comes from God, and I don't know the outcome of whether I'll stay sober for the rest of my life. You know, I want to, but I have to, by the grace of God, I trust this will happen. And grace was God's gift to me. Okay, so if I, and this is hypothetical, if each day I seek an alternate to grace, uh what shall I say, living style, it's, it's like, you know, you have health alternatives, doctors' alternatives, alternative medicine. This is what I'm trying to say. Okay. Then thats that can't... I may wish, I may beg like Paul, that God take away the my thorn. thorn in the flesh, but I'm not in charge of that, and I have to realize that God is in charge of that.
0: Right, But but like Paul, he asked God three times to take the thorn away. We are just because we know God might use an affliction doesn't mean we can't go to the doctor. Alright? We, sh- we should not want to be sick because God made us that way. We, we need our health the best we can. We want to stay alive. God gave us a will to live. We should take care of ourselves. We should go to the doctor. We should not ever presume on God. But going to the doctor and if whatever the problem is doesn't go away, That's part of Romans 8.28. You just keep serving God. all right. I would love to have my allergies and asthma go away, but they just do not. But I do everything I can to keep them under control because I need my voice and I need my air to preach the gospel. Okay? Yes?
1: It's kind of like uh, there's this family I know. They're from Kenya, wonderful uh, Christian brothers and sisters in Christ, and Sadly, their daughter has a rare form of cancer that she's developed over the last few years. And we talked with them once recently about, well, how do, you, how do you deal with this? How do you get through this? And they said, well, you know, we're praying for a miracle. We're praying that she will be healed of her cancer. But yet we also realize that God is sovereignly in control of the situation. Amen. And they totally understand that God is providential. And it doesn't mean they're going to seek out and pray. as hard for her to be healed, but... They would recognize the resting in Him. Okay, that's how
0: Christians are, and that's how we should be. We should trust God. We should seek help. Okay, let's go back to verse eight concerning as I implored para kaleo, called to call or to in, call us, to call out beside um, the Lord. Probably Christ it's probably Christ three times that it it is not in the Greek might leave me aposte to depart, that it might depart, and he has said... Now, this one is interesting, and I actually saw this some years ago, and then when I was reading the scholars, I found some people that said the same thing that my thought was. He has said, it's in the perfect active, So that means at some point in the past, this was told to Paul, and it still applies. He has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Now, the thought I had about this is that when it says he has said, unusual tense in the Greek, he has said rather than he said, I think that it was the Lord Jesus that said my grace is sufficient and that he had said so bodily when he appeared to Christ or to Paul. In other words, that this wasn't just a mystical idea that came into his mind. That something Christ said to him at one of the times when he appeared to Paul, when Paul received from Christ in person the revelation of the gospel and the, new, and, and, and the things that he taught in the New Covenant. That it may have been actually literally Christ, not just a, a, an idea in his mind. Now, I think it was Barnett. Let me see if he's the one who said that. Yeah, he pointed out that Paul prayed to Christ. And he said this, Barnett, that Paul can make this statement without any further comment shows that both he and his readers understood that they could pray to the glorified Jesus as well as to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ's deity is implied by such a reference. That's in verse 8. Every once in a while, somebody will come around and trouble the saints and say you can't pray to Jesus. Have you ever heard that? I've heard that. They say, oh, you can't pray to Jesus. Well, Stephen did when he was being martyred. And Jesus said, and you will ask me, and I will send you another comforter. And here Paul talked to Christ himself, either in person or simply in prayer. Where did they get that? Well, they think it's an implication of the Lord's Prayer and things like that. Our Father who art in heaven. In other words, they, they think that that is, is a lock-tight kind of formula so that you always have to pray to the Father in the name of Jesus and you can't pray directly to Jesus. But it's just not a an impl- valid implication of Scripture, in my opinion. So they're diminishing Christ. Well, they may not want to diminish Christ, but they may just think that they, have, they found the pattern of prayer that you have to always follow. No, they're wrong. Okay, thank you. I'm agreeing with you. <laughs> I agree with you that they're wrong. Well, Barnett uh, said this, It is likely that Paul knew of and reflected upon the events of the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, both his three-fold prayer to his father, Gethsemane. Now, remember, so there's a pattern for the Jesus, did Jesus know that he was going to go to the cross? Yes. In fact, he said, "No one takes my life from me; I lay it down." But yet, in Gethsemane, he prayed three times that if it's if it's Thy will, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Okay, so even Jesus himself prayed that something be removed, but yet submitted himself to the will of God. So Paul did similarly. Okay. The words spoken on the cross, literally, He saved others. Himself, He cannot is not powerful to save. Mark 15:31 resonate in Paul's words that Christ Christ crucified is the power of God, the weakness of God. 1 Corinthians 1, The powerful salvation of God has been wrought in the powerless, crucified one. They were mocking Jesus, saying, you can't save yourself. Who, who, what kind of Savior is this? On the cross dying. A curse of death. Cursed is he who hangs on the tree at the hands of Romans. I thought you were going to defeat our enemies if you're the Messiah. They mock him. But the cross is the power of God. And so God's power is perfected through weakness. And that was the very uh, pattern that was revealed in Jesus Christ. God's power through Christ's weakness in death by crucifixion issues, issues in the crucifixion of Paul's inflated pride by means of the thorn or stake. God's power which caused Christ to be alive in resurrection and believers with Him issues in the power of Christ experienced in the patience, endurance, meekness, and gentleness of Christ. Thus the Lord's reply to Paul's prayer for the removal of the thorn stake is given in terms of the very gospel of the death and resurrection of Christ that the apostles proclaimed. My strength is perfected in weakness. And Jesus modeled that in His own crucifixion. And so this is something that Paul had been told, and therefore, he knew the answer. Notice there's a parallel, a synonymously parallel construction here. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected, teleo, brought to completion or fulfillment. Now, the synonymous parallelism is the terms grace and power. My grace is sufficient. Power is perfected in weakness. So grace is used synonymously with power. So that helps us understand grace. Grace, as understood in the New Testament, is a divine enabling that effectually works in the lives of believers to change us. Grace is God's Power. When we receive grace, we see power to change. Grace is effective. Paul says, By the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me did not prove vain. To be the recipient of grace is to be the recipient of God's gracious power to change us, to enable us, to give us all the strength we need to go through whatever it is we need to go through. When we receive grace, it's amazing. Christians in history, Christians that we've known, Christians that I've known, it's amazing what people can go through with grace. Have you ever seen a Christian who suffered so remarkably that you just can't imagine how they went through it? I know some here, I know some in our congregation, that that's the way it is right now, battling uh, at a fairly young age, cancer that just won't go away and comes back and won't go away and comes back and still concerned for others, still praying for others, still caring, still worshiping, still carrying on. God's grace can bring you through more than you can imagine. God's grace can bring you through more than you've ever been through yet. And God's grace will carry you all the way home to glory. I totally believe that. And if we believe that, what, what else would we do besides put ourselves under the means of grace? Okay? If the teaching of God's word is a means of grace, which it is, it's the, the primary means of grace, more important than the others, because the others are just reflections of that word itself. Luther was very strong on this idea of means of grace when he was fighting Rome. Why? Why? Because he, Luther wanted to identify what God ordained so he could separate that from all these innovations. There's, there's just hundreds of innovations in Rome. You can, uh, you can have rosary beads and, and, and think you're closer to God. You can do this, you can do that, do the other thing. But Luther wanted to know, how does God meet us? How does the Word come to us? And he was very strong. He had, a, he had a terminology called the external Word. And here's why he used the term the external Word. Not that the Word doesn't penetrate to our hearts, the external word is the word coming to us from the Bible. The enthusiasts had an internal word that was directly infused that they thought was the word. That didn't come from the Bible. So the enthusiasts uh, who were unleashed at the time of the Reformation as well were fought vociferously by both Luther and Calvin because they, they, they saw this as an attack against the true word, the external word that comes to us from the Bible. Now, Luther also taught that the reason um, baptism and the Lord's Supper were means of grace is because he called them the visible word and that the Gospels revealed in baptism, which it is according to Romans 6, right? The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is remembered in baptism as we are joining ourselves to the resurrected Christ in the likeness of his burial and his resurrection. And in the Lord's Supper, we have emblematically the reminder of the price Christ paid for our salvation. Amen? And so is the Word as well. And so the Word of God is the primary means of grace. Now, what is an implication of what I'm saying here? Let me, let me give you one obvious implication. That if in a congregation the Word of God is not forthrightly taught with power and authority and applied to people's lives... Whatever, whatever is going on, or whatever motive for doing that, any pastor who does that is purposely, whether he knows he's doing it or not, impoverishing every saint in that congregation. The, the, the more we're robbed of the preaching of the Word, the less we're receiving God's grace to change. And when we're not receiving the Word... Clearly taught and preached and applied, there's less grace. And when there's less grace, there's less change and less sanctification and less power at work in our lives. And when there's less change, sanctification, and power at work, we got more problems. We've got more moral problems. We have more marriage problems. We have more problems in general because we're not that sanctified. Sanctified people are easier to get along with. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> I wish I was more sanctified, don't you? Definitely be easier to get along with. And so then what, then what happens? Uh, Eric, Eric, you did a little, remember, we, we still have to write that article. Remember how churches staff their, yeah. So then what happens is the staff of these big churches that don't teach the word is filled up with therapists. They, buy, they may hire 10 or 12 therapists, people with therapy degrees, because they're trying to fix all these problems that people have. And if they were under the means of grace, the problems would be progressively being changed. Because that's just how God works. So, Paul found out that God's grace was sufficient. But he had asked for it to be, to be removed. And so, we know that we can, in prayer, ask God, to change things that come to our lives that we find to be troubling. But if he does not answer, if he does not bring a relief from the problem, then it's safe to assume that the answer that we're getting is the same one Paul did. Right? My grace is sufficient for you. That's not just only Paul that that grace is sufficient for. Every Christian can say, the Lord told me, from the Bible... (laughs) My grace is sufficient. So the Lord will either deliver us from our problems when we ask Him, and you need to ask because He does deliver, or He will give us sufficient grace to function as godly people in the problem. Does that make sense? Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Have you experienced it? Yes. Yes, I know you have. Absolutely you have, because you're a Christian, and you know Jesus, and you love him. So his grace is working in your life. And you've made it through things that if somebody told you ahead of time you had to go through, you would have thought, "Uh uh-oh, I'll never make it. (laughs) But we do. But we do. Thank you, and next week I want to get more deeply into this whole idea of the grace being sufficient and why that was Paul's answer and why it applies to us, as we were saying today. God bless you. We'll see you upstairs in a half hour.